as a coach if i'm tempted by the idea of oh uh, helping people is a uh, is a great way of being in the world i would always be driven by that sense of gratefulness greatness that oh i'm doing something great right <laughs> that will be so if i am not being recognized then probably it will start to hurt or pinch after a while so that is like a self check and self balance as well and then i will feel like oh this sort of problem doesn't feel like uh you know challenging enough to work on but coaching is coaching you know anybody who's sitting in front of you and say that you know i need some i need to be heard or it it could be small or big you know we we wouldn't then start to analyze things in that way good evening everybody and good morning to those who are joining from uh, america side good day those who are joining from europe welcome welcome to our webinar okay we'll start uh, yep Our speaker today needs no introduction because she joins us for the past few months as host of the Masters in Coaching webinar. It's my pleasure today to introduce Kumal into the topic or with the topic of Eastern philosophies in coaching. How could we use Eastern philosophies in coaching, with coaching, with our clients? What is the blend uh, with Eastern philosophies and coaching? What is the relatedness and the meaningfulness of using it? And Kumal is going to engage in some thought-provoking connections, engagements, and unpacking a few concepts and philosophies around Eastern philosophies and how we use it with coaching. I'll hand over to Kumal. Thank you, Kumal. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's a top and welcome everybody. Uh, it's a topic very, very close to my heart. I don't know where and how it sort of uh, got connected to me I think right from the very childhood because I was exposed to some key ideas while growing up in India but haven't had much of the knowledge but I think the coaching journey uh, brought it more closer to me and especially choosing Gocharya for my uh, coach training school sort of also brought it into perspective quite a lot and I dabbled more and more and uh, it, it may sometimes feel like, you know, uh, why philosophy or why do we even need to learn in detail about all of these things or, you know, why bother? <laughs> so I 
today would like to just bring in something that I have learned from my own experience, dabbling into uh, philosophy that to primarily the what I call the ancient wisdoms and what it encompasses are the different uh, philosophies that have originated in India, China, Japan, which are like uh, Vedanta, Yoga or the Hindu philosophies from Hinduism. Then Buddhism has its own philosophy. Then there is Zen, which is quite popular in Eastern world. And then Tao, Taoism, which uh, originated in China. And when I started to explore these, I found a lot of interconnectedness in these. So that is why we sort of put them as a blanket, like Eastern philosophies or ancient traditions, which are valid even today. And we will explore that going forward. But in the meantime, I will urge you, if you have any questions or any thoughts, any comments, please continue to share them with us. So uh, I think, Cindy, the correct place would be to begin with understanding a case for philosophy, like why we as coaches uh, need to learn about these ancient philosophies and how do they support us. And let's tackle it right from the ICF way. <laughs> let's go first to the competencies and see what ICF or what different code uh, or even EMCC uh, speak about the competencies of a coach. And, you know, we all would agree and there is no uh, other way of stating that we all know that uh, good coaches are the ones who are empathetic, who are compassionate, who treat the client as a whole person. Because that's the only time when you can really support and help somebody grow and develop and see themselves for who they are and operate from their best and highest potential. But does it come naturally to everybody? Is everybody just compassionate and can, and even if we are, is it really easy or simple for us to extend that compassion to other people? And where does it actually come from? So when we think about developing all of those competencies or even practicing those competencies, I wouldn't even say developing or because I believe that we all have these capacities within us. But do we live from those capacities? Are we practicing it enough with other people? And where does it come from? So it can come from, uh, in my view, from two different places. One is that we know and we hear that, oh, yes, uh, behaving in a certain way is good, so let's behave in that manner. And whatever our mind conceive of that behavior, we sort of, you know, wear it like a dress and say, yes, now I'm behaving in that manner. Quite a lot akin to what we hear say, like, fake it till you make it. It's like, okay, just embrace it or just uh, become empathetic, whatever your mind conceive empathy to be, right? In a way, it's a very moralistic view of understanding the competency, or it's a very moralistic view of adopting certain behaviors. Like, you know, I should always be good about people, or uh, 
I should always be kind to people. So I will extend my kindness. That is one way of being. Another way of, uh, you know, being kind is through experiencing, through really exploring ourselves in that experience, having a perspective around that, digging deeper and going, okay, so what does really, really kindness mean? You know, how do I know that I'm being kind or somebody else is being kind? How do I experience kindness, right? How do, how am I viewed as kind? Like, what are those things? And whenever I take those actions, what happens within me? Is it natural to me? Or do I need to do something? Or when somebody is behaving really bad and, and I know at a mental level that that behavior isn't acceptable, what does that do to me? Can I still be kind? Like what needs to happen within me to go to that place of kindness? All these explorations are the philosophy around um, a certain behavior. When we dig deeper, we are going a philosopher's way. And then we come across uh, all of these traditions, which basically speak us to question, experiment, experience, and not just say, receive something like, oh yeah, it's good to be done, so I will do it from today onwards. And then ignore what's happening inside you, because it will always be a... Uh, imposed behavior and it will always be an effort and a struggle whereas if we try and go the way how the in, the traditions tell us is that question first of all why do I need to be kind and do I, do I always need to be kind or can I really always come from a space of kindness What's happening within me and how is it impacting the relationship with people, relationship with my surroundings? So that is why I become interested because when you have gone through that journey on your own, then what remains ultimately is your very natural self. Then you are effortlessly kind. Then you're effortlessly empathetic. And your way of empathy may be completely different from somebody else's way of empathy. So I think what understanding or learning about these philosophies and practicing and going through them teaches you is that you do not need to put yourself in the box of empathy. You do not need to put yourself in the box of a competency, but you need to take that competency, bring it in, see it, sense it, feel it, cut it, make it in your own way. So you be kind in your own way. And I think that is what is the ultimate of these competencies for us. Otherwise, it will become like another cookie cutter model thing that like you follow these processes and that happens. Absolutely spot on. I say to a lot of new coaches, you're not a blank canvas. You come with a life rich, full of experiences and 
um, within those experiences, you develop skills, strengths, abilities, and uniqueness. And you take learnings and you move forward. So you have this rich canvas. When you start coach training, it is necessary to wipe the slate clean and learn as if it's a new concept. <clears throat> the best way to learn is actually the reverse. Exactly what you're saying, Kumar, hone it and connect dots for yourself because then the application of it with clients is more authentic. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing which I realized is like what we're talking about is something which the artists do, like they just practice, practice, practice and see how something works for them and through them. Right. And so this same art of coaching, I don't I don't really believe that any coach need to wait till a certain level to start honing this. You know, this is some practice which can be started right from the day one. So that's why also I feel like right at the point when you're starting journey, you can start uh, to learn about the philosophies or the psychology or, or whatever, you know, fancy you and whatever uh, you're interested in. So that's why. Because what you're saying connects to purpose and meaning of why we want this particular goal or theme or whatever we're working on. It's so interconnected, right? And of course, you used a lot of words around different kinds of Eastern philosophies, like, of course, um, Ikikai, um, you know. Ventilated words, it's all meaningfulness. And I'm trying not to use competencies here and not doing a good job, but it relates to core competency 3.3, you know, the meaningfulness and purpose of what makes sense to us. Because when we have that attachment, we work yeah. more progressively and with more. Um, more drive, more sense of achievement into what we want on that goal. Yeah. And I also found, Cindy, like the more I explored it from the perspective of ancient traditions, the reframings and the frame shifts have been so very powerful for me as a coach. So, so there are two ways I think, uh, you know, we can take the understanding of these philosophies. Uh, one is, of course, always as a, as a knowledge and as, as a tool to use with our clients when we are coaching them. But another more powerful and deeply impacting way is to work on ourselves as a coach. Hmm. Because... Uh, I think the difference, the way I see the difference between the ACC, PCC, MCC, or, or, you know, with much experience is that 
as a person as a coach you go on refining your own inner self more and more and more and more and all those excesses sort of go on shedding out and only the crux and the and and a very grounded present self remains hmm. and i think these philosophies are helping me uh, in in a big way on this journey and to understand that how best i can work with myself because i have realized that more than using a tool with the client it is how i am using me in with the client which is helping get the results so if i am present with my complete focus with the client without any um, you know my own mental disturbances that shows me how the conversation goes how i am able to support how well the client is able to progress on their own journey and i would like to bring in one concept which ram also uses quite a lot which is the level of awareness and i remember when i was going through the coach training program and we were doing these practice so me and tracy we used to coach each other as well like we do our own coachings and then we will coach each other and see like you know what do we need to improve so i remember very candidly once i was telling her i said you know when i'm with the client i am saying something and then later on when i notice and observe my own transcript or videos i'm like ee why did i miss some point like what was happening with me like why didn't i hear this i mean very clearly the client is telling me something why am i able not able to notice and that made me realize that there are some internal resistances still going on and and i was like what do i do how can i be present for both the client and also present for me like right so and i remember i told tracy i said i wish while i'm noticing the client i can also notice myself like what's happening in my mind am i you know really being present for the client and when i read uh, the you know ram's blog on the four stages of awareness and i was like aha so this is what is not happening so that fourth stage of awareness says like we when we are able to be present just as an observer and that observer isn't the observer of other that observer is the observer of the entire system which includes me as well so i was like ah so the solution is to go to that level of awareness and then how would you go to that level of awareness it needs both not just the understanding of what it is but also the practice like okay so so you go through those practices and then reflections and then it takes you to a level where you are then able to be present for the client and for yourself equally yeah. uh cindy you went mute that's quite masterful what you just said like how do we show how for our clients in a way that 
that we listen to, acknowledge, and fully present with the said and the unsaid of the client. Yeah? Yep. And you know, Kumar, I do this thing in, um, I mean, I do this way of teaching, one, one small way of teaching for our MCC participants. And I demonstrated with my hands, like, our clients and I, you and the client are the same. The soul in me or the heart in me sees the heart in you. We are one. We're the same as in not one of us takes the role of expert. So when we begin to do this expertise role over the client, and you know, what sometimes happens in coaching, then it's good to remind yourself how you can ground into the quality state again. Yep. Absolutely. And that brings me to uh, the wholeness. Like yeah. it, the coaching competency clearly says that the coach can, uh, you know, treats the client as a whole person. And that sometimes I remember when I started in the coaching journey, I was like, okay, so what is this whole person is, right? And to understand this whole person, again, you know, I got a lot of help through uh, the, uh, through Bhagavad Gita and whatever is said in these uh, ancient philosophies. Like what really is the, how do you really identify a whole person? Who is a whole person, right? And then there is one, uh, I came across this one shloka from, um, uh, one of the Vedas, uh, I think it's uh, the first one. I just forgetting it right now. Which says, uh, which is the Purnamidam Shloka, which says that this universe is whole and complete. It's full, and every fragment of it is. And if you take something out of this fullness, it stays full even. And whatever you take out is also full in itself. And then if I go with the idea of that, okay, so this universe and every manifestation of this universe, which includes us, is, is whole in itself already at every given point of time, then we do not need to do anything to make it whole. It already is whole, right? So when you come from that place of understanding, your line of question or your curiosity will completely change. So when a client is sitting in, in a total uh, helplessness state, you'll be like, my God, this person is whole, full of potential, but is not able to see. What is stopping this person from seeing themselves as a whole? Because you now know that, yes, this person is whole. So just... A Experimenting from that idea changes or shifts your way. Because if you would not come from that space where you know within yourself that no, everybody is whole, you'll be like flowing away with whatever story they are, flowing away with their narrative. And you'll be like, oh my God, so much of pain, so much of trouble. 
otherwise you can sit back and say that like you are everything but you somehow something is stopping you from seeing let's explore that so you will not go with the flow of the sentiments of the client but you'll be able to hold the grounding and say focus on what need to be focused in the moment So again, how would we know that idea? Will we just believe that, oh, something is said and it's done? No. Knowingness will again come on when you again experience that wholeness within self and say that, oh, so this is what a whole being means. So it's using the wholeness and resourcefulness of self. Yes. Trusting the process of, say, coaching, if we're using it yeah. in coaching. Yeah. We kind of uh, offer questions or invite the client to notice their resourcefulness, wholeness. Absolutely. The one thing that I always, I learned this over time, it wasn't like it showed up the first day I became a coach, that even the gaps and barriers and what's stopping the client is the opportunity for something new. Yes, exactly. Because if there was not a gap or there was not a barrier or a blind spot, then how would we move forward into the newness of something? Exactly. And they... So every failure, every barrier is like a, a indicator that shows you that, oh, perhaps you're not going on the right path or you're, you're not doing something in the right manner. So that's a moment of course correction. It's like, how would you correct your path if you don't know, if you're not aware that actually you're going on a wrong path? So some, something need to tell you. And that something could be the difficulties or the challenges that you're facing, or maybe the failures that are coming across, or maybe something not working out. Like you, you knock on a door, it doesn't open for you. Just an indicator, not meant for you. Not the right path for you. Course correction, right? But build another door and open it yourself. Yes, exactly. Or maybe there are already so many others opened, but you're just not looking at that. And that brings me to another interesting idea, uh, which I explored is the motivation, like human motivation and drive. So there are quite a lot of theories on human motivation and drive. There is like Hertzberg's factor theory. There is Maslow's hierarchy of needs theory. And all of them are very, very useful to help us understand quite a lot about human behavior. What ancient uh, uh, wisdom says about human motivation, especially in Hinduism, Vedanta, or even yoga philosophy says the same thing, which is there are primarily two drives, just two. Very simple, that at every given point of time, we humans, we either try to go towards something or try to go away from something. And the best way to understand is like, whatever is alluring, whatever is pleasureful, whatever is looks good to us or looks promising, we like to go towards that. 
and then whatever seems like painful or difficult or stressing we try to avoid and move away from that and between this push pull and push of pain and pleasure the entire human life sort of goes on and it's not really bad the whole idea of moving in pain and pleasure is because that's the motivation that's the drive we need to work and you know operate and and most of us operate very well with those like fear is is the biggest motivator for some people to take action but it starts to become a problem after a while because this pull and push is not a sustainable strategy it's not a sustainable way of living or operating from so maybe initially we learn to operate with pain and pleasure carrot and stick right but at some point we all sort of come to a point where we feel like oh it's exhausting because it's very energy consuming it leads to a lot of different kind of addictions also we may not consider that we are addicted to certain ways but to some varying degrees we all become sort of addicted to things so what is the way out for that so the way out for that is to not go on either extremes to come in the middle which buddha also said as the madhya marg or the middle path or the path of uh where extremes are not present same is said in the yoga philosophy same is said in uh, hindu philosophies other hindu philosophies is that choose that middle path and what is that middle path what lies in that middle path is what is the concept of dharma as is explained in uh, bhagavad gita that you follow a path irrespective of whether it's going to bring you pain or pleasure you do it because it needs to be done because that is your dharma because that is your rightful duty so they call it dharma buddhists call it madhya marg but it's that same idea the same thing that to move beyond from pain and pleasure or the extremes of what drives you but come to the middle path and if you look at you are you, are you referring to the the path of least resistance least resistance yes and it is also a very empowering space because if you say okay uh you know we form our goals is like okay yes i like it and this is this gives me my uh, or or this gives me connection or affection of my family or my people and that's why i'm doing it or this brings me a lot of uh, self accolades and people will praise me and that's why i do it there's nothing wrong in it just identify if it's an empowering state of being for somebody or not because it's said in um, these books and it's true that whatever has the power to make you happy has the power to make you unhappy as well because the moment it vanishes or the moment it fades away you're again unhappy you're again sort of so the way is to rightfully say come to the middle path which is more empowered and you say yes this is alluring and yes it will bring me all of these things but 
is that the right thing for me to do? Still be able to question or say, yes, this, this choice looks like not very interesting, looks like there'll be a lot of effort I would need to put in. But is this what is required in the moment? Because that will help us grow actually in life. And that is what is the meaning of Sukh, Dukhe, Same, Kritva, Labha, Labho, Jaya, Jayo in Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says that keep the pleasure and the pain at the same level or the gain and the loss at the same level and then choose to do. So then it is again becoming aware of, uh, you know, what is the drive. So instead of getting driven by our senses, we choose. And that's like an empowered state of being. And you know, Kamal, you because you said, let's dive into the coaching competencies first, or the relationship to competencies. I can't help but think that sounds like a coaching mindset. Yeah. Grounded, centered, open, flexible. It's right in the center, a center where you can explore many many options dimensions showing up for you versus the polarity thinking on either end yeah absolutely it's like as a coach if i'm tempted by the idea of oh uh, helping people is a uh, is a great way of being in the world I would always be driven by that sense of gratefulness, greatness that, oh, I'm doing something great, right? <laughs> that will be, so if I am not being recognized, then probably it will start to hurt or pinch after a while. Yeah. So that is like a self-check and self-balance as well. And then I will feel like, oh, this sort of problem doesn't feel like uh you know challenging enough to work on but coaching is coaching you know anybody who's sitting in front of you and say that you know i need some i need to be heard or it it could be small or big you know we we wouldn't then start to analyze things in that way a whole lot of clients also sometimes would come and say that uh, you know it's not worthy enough goal well what really is worthy enough goal <laughs> If right now something is required to be done, it needs to be done. So I want to share with our participants, Kamal, because it seems like this conversation is so interesting and flowing. Let's see what's showing up for them in this question. Co participants tell us, if you were a coach and um, using some Eastern philosophies or concepts like the one I use, one of those are one of mine. Um, what do you use in coaching? We'd love to hear from you. Are there any Eastern tools, philosophies, um, what's the good word? An experience that you would engage your client in. What do you use? And while they're typing, Kumal, you know, because you were speaking about Dharma, um, 
can be engaged in a bit on karma. So what is that? Yeah. So that's a very interesting aspect because a whole lot of times we understand karma about the cause and effect or it's a very popularly known word. Uh, but what I understand of it from the philosophy is that, and, and it's also embedded in uh, in a little bit associated with dharma as well. So to understand rightfully what karma is, we also need to understand dharma. Of course, there are different ways of defining. So karma is basically, karma simply translated means action. That you got to act. So whatever action you're do it, taking or you're doing is your karma. And sometimes we try and see it in a way like, okay, a good karma or a bad karma. I don't think there is any sort of a, like a good karma or a bad karma. It is just the action. For example, uh, we say that, oh, you shouldn't kill somebody. Like killing is bad. You know, killing is a bad karma. Consider the uh, the life of a butcher. That is its job, right? Uh, killing animals or, you know, butchering birds or, you know, for purpose of food. That is the job of a person. So is it a bad karma for them? Are they sort of getting bad karma and somebody says that oh this is something bad you shouldn't be doing this well a whole lot of people wouldn't get food to eat those who eat meat right and similarly if we say uh, somebody tries to attack you and you end up killing is that again a bad karma are you killing some so it's always in the context it's always in, say, if you, if somebody gets killed by you because you've been protecting yourself or you've been protecting somebody. Yes, it's morally, it's not the right action. But it's not a bad karma because you did not intend to kill that person, right? So there's, or if you're a soldier and it is your dharma, if you, what we've understood, like a kshatriya, Dharma is to protect their people, to protect their soul. And if in that process, they need to fight, just like in Bhagavad Gita, it happened with Arjun and Krishna. So he said that it's a Dharma Yuddha, which means as a fighter, your Dharma is to fight. So rightfully, we all have certain actions or certain karmas for us. For example, a teacher would have uh, their own rightful actions that they need to take right so with what intention you are undertaking those actions will only decide whether it is an uplifting enlightening karma or it creates more and more burden on you so there are different ways of looking at it like it's so in hindu tradition we believe that whenever you're born you're born with certain karmic uh imprints 
which is called as prarabdha karma like it's a karma that has been that you have accumulated over the past lives and you are supposed to you're bound to take those actions in your life so you will definitely do those actions right and then there is a sanchit karma which is like you know you, you whatever actions you're taking right now today their response or their outcome is going to be you know sanchit or say stored and then you would get the result or outcome according to that whenever the time is there and then there is an agami karma that you whatever actions you're doing today are going to uh, bring you the result or the fruit in in the future it could be a very near future or it could be a distant future so that's how we sort of understand how karma is uh, segregated one very interesting way that i've found in karma is that how would you know whether you're doing what you you are supposed to be doing that i am born with this prarabdha so i am supposed to be doing this when in an action you feel at ease and at flow that is your prarabdha karma which means you are acting according to your nature or your prarabdha like i am born to do this or or this is my purpose so we can understand it like a purpose so prarabdha karma is a purpose you're born with so when you are working according to your karma you're aligned there is no resistance you are at ease you are in flow and that tells you that yes i am on the right path taking my rightful actions the moment your action isn't right or isn't aligned to your purpose or your prarabdha they you'll feel a resistance you'll feel it within yourself or you will feel it in a way of some external impediments put in the way like again failure challenges yeah. and those kind no, of um uh, kamal that's why i raised it because you hear this word karma is very commonly used um and you hear the amount of people say when when there's a block in the way and they're not achieving something the lack of something they go oh, well that's my karma you know as if it was the part that they were not supposed to you know have success failure was in their part so they go oh well, that's my karma and resign to it yeah no that itself is like antithesis to karma because exactly right yeah, exactly. and resignation is like lack of action so absolutely yeah. if you're explaining it with the action of it yeah not the lack of action and also you know one thing which karma offers you is that okay so whatever has been the past fine it has it's happening like you are not getting something so you say that okay maybe i'm coming across this challenge because i did something in the past because of which i have been brought to this place then how would you take it to your agami karma or how would you take this forward would you just resign and say that oh i'll just accept and sit tight or you say okay 
I will learn my lesson. Yes, it's feeling. Yes, it's hurting. But what am I learning out of it? What am I taking out of it? Right? It's like, suppose you put in a lot of hard work in an exam or something, uh, or, or you want to set up a business. And you're depending upon your friends and family to support you, but you do not get their support and you feel like, oh my God, it's my karma. I've got the bad family, the bad friends, and you know nobody's supporting to me. What are you doing? You are, uh, yes, you are recognizing and acknowledging that, yes, there's something, This these challenges you're getting in life because in the past you might have done something because of which you have come to this point. But even now, whatever you're doing is not going to help you forward because you're not exercising the most highest possible choice for yourself. You're only recognizing and resigning and even sort of complaining about the situation. Or you can say that, okay, so this is how it feels when you do not get supported by your family and friends, fine. What can I do? How, how can I make this thing? Uh, should I leave it or should I explore other ways or should I just strive, right? You acknowledge that feeling because maybe the learning that need to come out of that situation is for you to feel that state that, okay, when you are not supported, it doesn't really feel good but you still strive and move on. And tomorrow, if you become successful and you, so what's possible for you is that you have had that feeling that when you were not supported, it was difficult for you. Would you now be open to support other people? Because you've had that feeling and you've had your learnings out of it? Or would you say that, I wasn't supported. I'm not going to support other people. So, so, so that karmic choice is always in our hands. That whatever is coming from the past, how do we take this forward is always our choice. That is where we have that, what do you call that, um, free will yeah. to alter this cycle of karma that we go on. As you said a few minutes ago, remain in the center. Yeah. Because it's more grounded and you can figure out your past learnings and how you want to move forward with it. That's why when karma is associated with dharma, it's like, yes, the liberating path. That is the path to liberation, actually. And liberation, which doesn't lie anywhere after life or beyond death, but right now, right here, you'll feel that liberation in your heart. You'll be like, okay, I'm not burdened. I'm at ease. I'm living freely. That's liberation. Yeah. So we've got a few more minutes to go, like about 12 minutes or so. I see what else? Beth has a question. It says, uh, does a client ever seem uncomfortable with you being in a non-expert, grounded, and centered state? Um, Beth, uh, do you mean to ask like that the client is in a non-expert, non-grounded, and centered state? 
if that is so okay so let me see right now me and cindy are having this conversation so i might be coming across as an expert but this is not how i am in front of the clients <laughs> in front of the clients all of this just helps me in the background yeah. It's all in the background. I am just present, listening, asking questions. And okay, I'll just give you a small example how it sort of helps. So uh, we all know about mind and I'm sure this would be something which we, we all could relate. When you talk to people, whether they're your clients or other people, sometimes you will notice their mindset to be in completely different ways. So some people would be speaking in a way where they are in a state of dilemma. Like, oh, I want to do this, but then I'm considering this also. And then I'm confused which one to choose. Some people would be like all over the place. They will speak about this in a moment and then will completely jump to a different unrelated aspect. And then some would be in a, in a stuck state of mind saying, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. So these are like different states of mind. Now, what yoga philosophy talks about mind? It says that there are five different stages, states of mind. Like mind can be in five different states of being. The first three it describes as mudakshipt vikshipt, which means the ignorant mind the scattered or impure mind and the divided mind. The fourth stage, it says ikagra, which is one-pointed mind. And the fifth state is like the fully focused, engaged mind, which is called as niruddha. Now, in order to achieve anything or manifest anything in life, we all need to be in that one-pointed, concentrated state of mind. Then only we can sort of drive and put all our energies into what we want to do. And when our mind is also focused and concentrated, you will notice that that well-being is also present. We are calm. We All our energies are directed and aligned to what we want to do. And if... And the earlier three stages of Kshipta, uh, Vikshipta and Muda are the stages of pain and a lot of uh, you know mental illness also or a lot of what we call as uh, so in sanskrit or buddhists call it dukkha but i'll say like pain and misery basically so as long as your mind is ignorant you're miserable if your mind is scattered and all over the place you are miserable and when it's in dilemma and divided then also there is some level of misery occur now, how does this knowledge and this awareness help us with our clients? Is that you just sit back, you just listen and you notice and the way they speak or the way they come across will tell you how, what is the state of mind of the client right now? And then staying in your state, you don't need to tell them that, oh, you are really in a scattered mind right now and that's why you're miserable. No, that gives you more hints about what exactly, what really this mind needs right now. There are certain reasons for a mind to be scattered, which is mostly fear. 
when a person is disconnected and detached to their surroundings or their purpose or or the people around them who can really support and they feel like I'm alone and I'm the only one who have to do it, the mind scatters because out of fear, the mind will scatter. So if you know this, what you could do is you can just talk to the person and help them talk more and explore more with them. Like, okay, so what is happening? I see you going all of the places. What is it that you need? So you know that this person needs to go to a focused and concentrated mind state, but they would only go to that focused and concentrated mind state when they are able to let go of their fear and which needs them to find their connections, find the connections with people around or have a support system around them or to even find a connection with, with the right purpose. So you can always help them explore and talk more about those things. When a person is, is in a divided mind state, you know that they need to, uh, you know, so what they are perhaps contemplating uh, uh, are different value sets, different belief systems. So you go and explore on those areas and help them find where do they really are connected, which value is strongly catching to them. Person who's totally ignorant need more knowledge. They need more information. And that will really help them unstuck their mind. So if as a coach, I say that I'm not supposed to say anything. I'm just supposed to ask question. Go on asking as many number of questions. If a person's mind is stuck, they'll be like, I don't know. I don't know. And then they'll go on getting frustrated. So at that moment, you need to say that, okay, so I need to put in something to bring out something. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people have seen, but when I was younger in, in the village where my dad used to teach, there used to be these hand pumps to pull water from the ground level. And those were very interesting kind of hand pumps because to before you pull out more water, you need to first had to put in some water from top. And, and that seems like, like sometimes with ignorant minds, what you need to do is you need to give a little to then start drawing something from within them. Absolutely. And that awareness, I think, comes when we are able to understand, like, how are the different minds of people? Very interesting, Kumar. I have no idea how time has gone by. And Me neither. <laughs> and, and I wanted I to understand. look at it, chat more, but I was just uh, talking, so I didn't realize. <laughs> I'm going to have to look at it. So I was going to say that um, 
Look, we do this in Coach Arya, in our coach training, right? We had bits and pieces of Eastern philosophy because that's what our training is all about. But you have one that's very centered to the theme of Eastern philosophy, meaning your coach training for level one ACCs, and I think you've got an advance also for that we use more Eastern philosophies linking to coaching competencies. If anybody wants to know more, because I see, uh, you know, I get a sense people had some questions while listening and maybe didn't ask. How would they get hold of you? Do you want to, is it okay they contact you or contact the office? What, what do people do? Maybe somebody just wants to have a chat with you on training and what you offer. How would they do that? Uh, is it a question for me, Cindy? Yes. How would okay. they get hold of you? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I can put in the email ID, which is very simple, komal at koacharya.com. Uh, you know, connect with me, I can share more. Uh, or if you are at Coach Nook, then I can, you know, you can connect with me at Coach Nook as well. Or uh, Coach Arya is always there, like reach out to support or Magda or to anybody. And I think we will be starting the program uh, starting from second week of January, uh, which is more like a foundation program, but I'm sure sometime soon we'll also work on just a standalone program where we sort of deep dive only into philosophy for Eastern philosophy yeah. for the coaches. So those who have already done the certification and just want to, you know, get immersed. Into, a bit more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think we can do that program as well. That'll be a four-week session with, uh, you know, very small. It The amount is very small there, the fee, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> but okay. it does need a lot of uh, reflection and practice. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Thank you, Kumal. It was lovely engaging with you and opening up. Um, you know, more on Eastern philosophies and the link and the tie into coaching. Yeah, thank you so much, Cindy. I uh, absolutely love to talk about it, like you've seen. And uh, yeah, it'll be great uh, to have other people uh, having these dialogues and sharing their ideas and, you know, coming up to learn more. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Do reach out to Smita, to the office or to Kamal if you need any more info. Um, and this recording will be on our YouTube channel soon. And give it a day or two. Um, have a lovely week ahead and we'll see you at the end of December. Hi everyone. Bye.